This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by Princeton University Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and The Debate Over Race in America by Nicholas Bucola. On February 18, 1965, an overflowing crowd packed the Cambridge Union in Cambridge, England, to witness a historic televised debate between James Baldwin, the leading literary voice of the civil rights movement, and William F. Buckley Jr., a fierce critic of the movement and America's most influential conservative intellectual. The topic was, The American Dream is at the Expense of the American Negro and no one who has seen the debate can forget it. This is the first book to tell the full story of the event, the radically different paths that led Baldwin and Buckley into it, the controversies that followed, and how it continues to illuminate America's racial divide today. The Fire is Upon Us by Nicholas Biucola. Out now from Princeton University Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The rise of the far right is an unfortunately global phenomenon. Perhaps nowhere is the far right stronger than in the second most populous country on earth, India. There, the Bharatiya Janta Party, or BJP, continues in power under Prime Minister Narendra Modi after winning a huge victory in this year's elections. The BJP, however, isn't just a party. The vision of the BJP and their cadre organization, the RSS, is of an India where Muslims have no history and thus no right to belonging in the present, and of a country that becomes great again through nuclear-armed militarism. But while Indian politics have no doubt taken a bleak turn, they are far from novel. Today's disastrous state of affairs, as my guest Achin Vinayak explains, has deep roots going back to before partition, and the BJP's rise, he argues, can only be made sense of in the context of the triumph of neoliberalism and the fall of the long-ruling Congress party and of its Nehru-Gandhi ruling dynasty, which stretches from Jawaharlal Nehru through Indira Gandhi, Rajiv Gandhi, and Rahul Gandhi, all of no relation to Mahatma Gandhi, the independence leader who, for many in the West, has become anachronistically synonymous with the Indian nation. Before we get this started, this is, above all, a listener-supported operation, And we can only pipe interviews like this into your earbuds on the weekly because you support us at patreon.com slash the dig. We paywall nothing. We have no venture capital or idiosyncratic billionaires. Just ads for cool books and you. Plus, we have excellent books 
to send you for free as a thank you gift, including Feminism for the 99%, A Manifesto, by Cynthia Arutza, Nancy Fraser, and Tiffy Bhattacharya. And so if you're currently walking your dog, shirking at work, grocery shopping, or striding upon an elliptical at your local YMCA, remember, take a few quick minutes when you're back at your computer and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Achin Vinayak, a retired professor of international relations at the University of Delhi and founding member of the Coalition for Nuclear Disarmament and Peace, India. He is the author of The Rise of Hindu Authoritarianism, Secular Claims, Communal Realities, and forthcoming Nationalist Dangers, Secular Failings, A Compass for an Indian Left. His work has also appeared in many publications, including New Left Review, Jacobin, and Socialist Register. I'll put some links to his recent work in the show notes. Achin Vinayak, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. To start off, a general question before we get into a lot of detail. Who is Prime Minister Narendra Modi? What is his Bharatiya Janta Party, the BJP, and how is it that it returned to power with such massive support in this year's election? Okay, let's take these three questions. First of all, Narendra Modi, as a young, uh, as a young junior, started attending what were known as the uh, local branches of the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, or what's called the National Volunteer Organization, from a young kid. And he was very much indoctrinated in their ideology. And in his uh, teens, uh, late teens, he became a member of the RSS and uh, effectively a full-timer for the RSS. And he rose up in the ranks slowly, slowly. And the RSS provides uh, personnel to the Bharatiya Janta Party uh, at the level of secretaries and so on. And uh, he was uh, seconded to the Bharatiya Janta Party uh, during the Ram Janabhumi campaign of the late 80s and the uh, early 90s and um, rose in the ranks there. Eventually, he was uh, made chief minister of the Bharatiya Janta Party in Gujarat. And uh, subsequently, after the 2002 pro- pogrom against Muslims, uh, in which, of course, he had uh, a very important role to play, his popularity among the cadres of the RSS increased. He won the elections in uh, Gujarat uh, successively, uh, became more and more popular with the uh, RSS cadre base. And in just before the 2014 general elections in 2013, he was made the prime ministerial candidate of the Bharatiya Janta Party, sidelining the uh, top leaders uh, like uh, L.K. Indwani, who was a number two under the former uh, Prime Minister uh, Atal Bihari Pajpai, who uh, 
uh, led a, a BJP coalition between 1998 and 2004. So that's Narendra Modi. Uh, Your second question was about uh, the Bharatiya Janta Party. The Bharatiya Janta Party is the electoral wing of the uh, Sangh Parivar, or if you like, the family of associations and organizations connected to the RSS, which is the parent body. But this family now includes the Vishwa Hindu Parishad or the World Hindu Council, which has branches in the U.S. and worldwide. It includes a whole host of organizations, Women's Wing, the Trade Union Federation, uh, a lumpen uh, body called the Bajrang Dal or the uh, soldiers of Hanuman, who are, if you like, a protection squad. And uh, you have the... uh, BJP as the electoral wing, in its earlier incarnation from 1951 to 1977, uh, the electoral wing was called the Jan Sangh. Uh, in 1977, it became part of the ruling coalition, coalition that deposed Indira Gandhi in 1977 when she had elections, of the Janata Party in 1979 because of its association with the RSS. But in 1980 onwards, it renamed itself as the Bharatiya Janata Party and since 1980 made a successive rise uh, to prominence and preeminence in the Indian context. Uh, the first time the BJP came to power was, uh, uh, the history of it is that One way of looking at its rise to power is to recognize that the decline of the Congress created a vacuum which the BJP eventually was able to fill. But uh, in this vacuum, the process of the BJP coming to power actually followed three other centrist-type parties like the Congress, which came to power in coalitions on three different occasions. But each and every one of those occasions could not last the, the could not last the full term of office. So what you like is that the, B, uh, the Congress party declines. Uh, its place electorally and at the government level is filled by three different uh, centrist, non-BJP, non-Congress type parties leading a coalition. None of them succeed in stabilizing themselves. And only after this experience, the BJP comes to power leading a coalition in 1998. It falls in 2004, you have 10 years of Congress rule leading a coalition. And then in 2014, it comes to power as a single party majority, but with a vote share of only 31%. You have a first past the post electoral system in this country, which means that there'll be a disproportion between the vote share and the number of seats that you get in in parliament, in the lower house of parliament, the equivalent of the House of Commons, if you like, in England and the House of Representatives in the United States. But uh, all other parties that have had a single uh, majority rule, the Congress, have always uh, had a vote share between 41% and 49%. In 2014, the BJP comes to power with a vote share, a majority, with a a slim majority, with only 31% of the votes, primarily because in the big states of the Hindi-speaking central India, Central and North India, it's dominant. And then in 2019, in the recent elections, 
it ex increased its vote share from 31% to 37% and got a substantial majority in seat terms. So it's the concentrated character of its vote in the northwest and center of, uh, of India that accounts for why, even with a smaller vote share, it's had a substantial majority. But I'm, even though I'm saying this, don't underestimate the extent of hegemony that it, it has established and the popularity of many of its, uh, the themes of its ideology. The BJP supports something called Hindutva, a, a form of Hindu nationalism that's often translated in English as, as Hinduness. What is the Hindu Rashtra that it seeks to build? And how have organizations like the RSS built so much power to advance what you describe as a form of fascism? Well, I, I, I call it a force with fascist characteristics. Uh, there's a debate in the Indian context about whether it's another variant or form of fascism or whether it has uh, fascist characteristics. But either way, right. it's a very ugly far-right force with obvious fascist characteristics and represents the biggest danger. Now, Hindutva uh, literally means Hinduness. You're quite correct when you point that out. It means Hinduness. And the argument basically is that uh, uh, Hinduness is the essence of India and is the essence of Indian nationalism. That is to say, Indian nationalism is founded on Hinduness and therefore it's essentially a Hindu nationalism. So you have, if you like, as in many other countries, a essentialist ethnic-based nationalism, a religious nationalism, which is supposed to be its core. So uh, how did it uh, uh, expand and develop this notion? Well, there have always been competing nationalism and during the national movement period, the other current uh, conception of, uh, of Indian nationalism was what was called a composite nationalism, which was led by the Congress party. But there have always been significant undercurrents of sympathy towards the notion of the Hindu essence of, uh, uh, of India. Hindutva is not to be confused with Hinduism. Hindutva is a political construct. Hinduism, of course, a religion. And like all religions, lends itself to uh, political construction uh, and shaping and religio-political movements uh, and struggles. Uh, so they were founded in 1925, inspired by Italian fascism and German fascism. And until the uh, mid-80s, electorally speaking, did not have much of a presence. But in terms of their influence in the north, west and center of India, in uh, civil society or in the pores of civil society, they definitely had this. And the real key to their success is that they have had a massive cater implantation in Indian civil society addressing all kinds of issues and needs. To begin with in towns and cities, and now, of course, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, expanding even into villages and so on. But that cater base has been absolutely central. It's had an ideologically committed and disciplined cater base, which kept it going. In much the same way, if you like, that the left traditionally has had a strong cater base and which kept it going. For example, during the interwar period, which was a terrible period for, uh, for the European left, nevertheless, left parties and radical left parties could say to their cadres that the future belongs to us. The morale was there and it kept going. Similarly, 
they were able to keep going despite their absence of electoral strength. Uh, but they were the only force that has had this kind of massive cadre base and implantation. And you know, if you try to compare the uh, RSS and the larger family, uh, what is called the Sung family, to other far-right forces in other parts of the world, please note uh, three distinctive things about this particular force, which I think also helps to explain its, its strength. One is longevity. Is there any other far-right force in Europe or in North America or anywhere else that has had a continuous existence of over 90 years? Well, this force has. It's remarkable. Second, nowhere else in the world do you have far-right forces with fascist characteristics uh, and so on or whatever you want to call them that have so massive an implantation in the pores of civil society. Duterte in Philippines does not have it. Bolsonaro in Brazil does not have it. Le Pen has electoral populism. She doesn't have that same implantation. So that's a second difference. It's profound. In fact, even though the Congress established its hegemony from 1947 Indian independence until the late 60s, in 1947, the RSN had in numbers a stronger cadre base. And then let us not forget that it has had a number of organizations that have emerged that have connected itself to it. Let's not forget that like, say, Hamas in Egypt, because it has implantation in civil society and addresses all kinds of needs, even secular needs, development needs, uh, uh, disaster relief, uh, as well as uh, uh, you know, cultural and ideological organizations and so on, uh, it was able to take great advantage. And no other force in India has had this kind of implantation except for the left parties in certain parts of India. As you know, what's common to the far left or even the left, mainstream left uh, historically and uh, far right is that both have had strong cadre-based formations. The Congress party had activists during the national movement period, but its ideology afterwards was a mishash, mishmash. It never had cadres as distinct from supporters and, uh, and, and a structure of leadership connected to patronage and clientelist networks. So the BJP has grown. Let me give you some uh, rough figures about getting, for you to get a sense of that. The BJP says that we have 180 million members, which makes it larger than the Chinese Communist Party. Of course, wow. uh, uh, you can become a member by simply giving a missed call uh, and you're a member. Okay, so you have tens of millions who may be members this way, but it still indicates the popularity of even passive membership for the BJP. It has around 800 NGOs doing work of all kinds. It has 36 affiliates. It has the largest uh, numbers, uh, trade union federation. It has the largest student federation uh, in the country. It has a significant women's uh, wing. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, uh, the World Hindu Council, which has branches abroad and so on, uh, which deals with cultural and religious matters and so on. The RSS is estimated to have anything between three to five million members. It has a host of full-timers. It has something like probably around 60,000 branches in different cities and towns 
uh, and Mofisils, Mofisil towns uh, in India. And that's absolutely enormous when you consider that it's a cadre organization. Yes. Now, of course, not everybody uh, are, are cadres in, in, in India and Britain. We pronounce it as cadres. So I hope you don't mind that. Oh, no, uh, no, no. Uh, pronounce it as you prefer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it is. But of course, what it has is a very, uh, the, sp- the spinal cord of the RSS, which is the parent body, and which is able to lend many of its full-timers like Arinda Modi to the BJP or to other affiliates as, you know, people to oversee and supervise what's happening, the trade union front, the student front, so on. Its full-time sort of cadres are a structure which is top-down and very obedient to those above them and very forceful in ensuring that there is obedience below them. And and that's really the great uh, uh, source of its strength. It has uh, full-timers, but I don't know what are the number of full-timers as distinct from simply members of the RSS, but even those which are not full-timers will be active members because that, of course, the RSS demands for them. Uh, it has the biggest troll army, uh, which meets, uh, it's whose sections meet once a week. Uh, it, uh, so it's really been in tune with the kind of developments in, uh, in com- communications technology, which has enabled it to spread its uh, message. I mean, there's more and more that I can say about what it's been able to do recently, but I'll stop there just to give you a sense of uh, its its strength. The Indian National Congress was, for decades after independence, the dominant force in Indian politics. But today it has been reduced to a shadow of its former self. And you write that we can't understand the BJP's new hegemony without first taking account of how the old Congress hegemony worked— and, and how it then came undone. I want to talk about that a little. And, and to start off, can you explain what was the Congress model for hegemony after independence, um, starting under Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru, who, who governed until 1964? Okay. Well, the real, uh, of course, the hegemony post-independence of the, of the Congress party was obviously related to the fact that it led the national movement. The RSS never seriously participated as an organization, never participated as an organization in the national movement, even as it claimed to be nationalism, because its basic enemy was Muslims, not the British. So uh, the Congress' success after independence, and the reason why it could establish a Germany was because of the enormous, A, prestige that it had secured, and second, Gandhi and the leaders of the, national, uh, of the Congress party had established a kind of network of support among rural leaders, among, among the rural elite and elsewhere, which of course sustained it for a, a decade and a half uh, after independence. Uh, it did not have a seriously coherent ideology on the basis of which you could talk about it having the kind of ideologically committed and disciplined cadres uh, that the RSS had, uh, because its ideology was something of a mishmash. Socialism in the sense of welfare, capitalism, secularism in a kind of loose sense of of, of a composite uh, nationalism, non-alignment in its uh, foreign policy, and uh, commitment to uh, certain notions of uh, democracy, uh, having elections, certain basic uh, civil liberties and rights, uh, which of course gave it credibility. And if you ask me 
what was the single most important reason for it for lasting for having a hegemony that lasted till the late uh, 60s uh, nehru dies in 64 and i would say it's really in 1967 that you have a break uh, from the congress party well i'll just say something about it's basically a it's great prestige it's a network of uh, patronage and clientelism that had been established and the fact that in the first 15 20 years of indian independence you had some considerable improvement relative to the past in the uh, in the living standards and and life of ordinary people colonial under colonial rule of course the situation is very bad uh, you had uh, from uh, 1947 till the late uh, 60s you had a growth rate around 3.5 4% 4.5 you had the development of a public sector uh, you had the development of an infrastructure you had the expansion of the government with employment opportunities here and there you had a certain limited land reform here so all of these things i would say the developmentalist aspect not the ideological aspect played a significant role in sustaining it but this had to end uh, there was a uh, by the late 70s it was quite clear that the congress is not going to be able to fulfill its uh, its promised goals of development and most important what happened is that the rural elite began to break away from its loyalty to the congress and form its own regional parties in other words if you like the regionalization of the indian polity really begins there and becomes a problem for the congress party and so in 1967 you had at the regional level parties uh non congress parties coming to the fore in a way which was not the case beforehand when the congress was the dominant uh, party at national elections and was also the dominant party in most uh, provincial state level uh, elections and then of course these regional parties uh, become stronger they became part of the uh, coalition framework and so on so that's really when it did not have any kind of a cadre which would remain that committed to it it became basically uh, and has remained basically a party that depends upon having access to state power and through mechanisms of patronage and clientelism can then uh, support base more widely congress ultimately moved from a developmentalist economic program to neoliberalism how did that play out historically and did congress and the bjp's neoliberal consensus help to create space for the bjp's ascendance um, well let me put this way what happened of course is that the earlier sort of economic ideology uh, was the sort of third world equivalent of a kind of keynesianism it was a state led developmentalism however in india this state led developmentalism unlike say in south korea actually did not succeed it did not india did not establish under nehru and even after successes a successful developmentalist state so that was a serious failure given this kind of failure and uh, given the fact that you had a rising uh, ruling class uh, a bourgeoisie in india which was becoming stronger but was looking to make itself even stronger and stronger and was somewhat frustrated by the fact that you still had a significant public sector and so on it put pressure along with of course the changes that had taken place on a global scale to move towards uh, uh, a neoliberal direction and in this respect the indian uh, experience if you like is similar to the experience in other countries and how they move towards uh, a neoliberalism let me put it this way 
let us see neoliberalism as a direction, not a state of affairs. What that means is that different countries in the world are all going in the same direction, but they have different starting points and they move in that direction at a different pace and sequencing of changes and reforms. So you have from the late 70s onwards a shift towards neoliberalism in the United States, Reaganism, Thatcherism, elsewhere with the end of Mitterrand in France. I mean, the failure of Mitterrand once it comes to power, you have a move there. Everywhere you begin to have this kind of move in capitalist societies towards uh, a neoliberal order, reflecting A, the failure of Keynesianism, and only possible because there was a serious defeat of the working class movement in many of these countries. So in the case of the United States, the defeat of PATCO. In the case of the UK, the defeat of the miners' strike. In India, in fact, the turn towards a more neoliberal direction took place after the 1982 defeat of the massive textile workers' strike in Mumbai and all that. So you will have to connect also the uh, political dimension. In other words, what I'm suggesting is that politics precedes economics in the sense that changes in the political relationship of forces becomes a crucial factor for the shift in economic direction. This shift in economic direction can only be stabilized in different countries if the main opposition party also accepts it. So in the United States, you have, uh, and, and the first reaction in the opposition party is to fight against it. But then, of course, if it's defeated, uh, like, for example, the defeat of Jesse Jackson, uh, involving a struggle within the uh, Democratic Party, which then gives rise to uh, the new Democrats under Clinton, or in the case of uh, the Labour Party, right. the new Labour under uh, after Benism is defeated, the new Labour under Blair. In India, you didn't have an organizational fight within the Congress Party. You had the Congress Party, not an opposition party, leading towards uh, neoliberalism. In the 80s, the BJP electorally was not significant. Its focus in the 80s was much more upon developing itself through the great Ram Janmabhoomi movement. But the BJP recognized that if it was going to be a significant player, it had to get the ruling class on its side. And therefore, what the BJP does is actually, and the Sangh Parivar does, is actually abandon its earlier economic nationalism which was earlier part of its notion of, uh, of, of nationalism, and goes along with the neoliberal drift. But the actual neoliberal drift was a started by the Congress. It uh, did not have a consensus to begin with from the BJP. Gets accelerated after 1991 by the Congress. Huh? But by that time after its acceleration, virtually all the parties, except for the mainstream left parties, are on, the, on board with the neoliberal direction. So when the BJP comes to power in 1998, it's very much uh, part of the uh, neoliberal uh, consensus. The mainstream left tried to fight against it, but in West Bengal, in order to advance industrialization, made serious concessions to it. So it caught itself in a trap in which its rhetoric was anti-neoliberal, but its practice was not. And I would say that that is the way that one can trace the movement towards uh, uh, neoliberalism here. And uh, in all cases, on a worldwide scale, I'd say, what you had from the late 70s onwards is what I have called, following um, Eric Hobsbawm, the politics of cultural exclusivisms in various forms. That is to say, 
which have taken the form of ethnicity, religion, yeah, and uh, nationalism, uh, either singly or in combination. And when they combine, it's with nation. And this took place everywhere in the former first world uh, racism and anti-immigrant xenophobia in Europe, uh, in uh, the former second world, ex-Yugoslavia, ex-USSR, nationalist irredentism, and everywhere in the world, religious extremism, whether you're talking about Christian extremism, religious Hindu extremism, religious extremism, Islam, uh, uh, Islamic uh, extremism, Buddhist extremism, and of course, uh, Israel and, uh, and its, uh, its extremist form of manipulation of, of Judaism. So this is something which is a global phenomenon, but all of these directions, right-wing directions, can only be stabilized depending upon the specificities of national right-wing politics and national right-wing ideologies. So the failures of developmentalism created great frustrations at the developmental level. Uh, you have much greater ideological disarray. You have increasing inequalities of income, wealth, and therefore a power which undermine democracy. All of this creating a much greater arena of popular frustration and anger and then, of course, it depends upon living politics in each country to see who can most benefit from it and who can direct and channel that kind of anger and frustration. And in the last 10 years, you've seen this taking the form primarily of right-wing and far-right authoritarian populisms. To what extent did, did Congress's emphasis on dynastic rule undermine its own hegemony or at least facilitate its denial of the crisis of its hegemony as it substituted increasingly less popular family members for any sort of coherent ideology and organization. You see, you, when you say that it, uh, it lacked a coherent ideology, you're right. When you say that it lacked a coherent organization, precisely, unlike, say, the uh, Democratic Party in the United States and uh, the Labour Party in Britain, because... Uh, uh, which had organizations. And in the face of the uh, uh, initiation of the neoliberal turn by Reagan and Thatcher, there was an organizational fight in the Democratic and Labour Party. And it is the defeat of that fight of Jesse Jackson and of Benism that then transformed the Democratic and Labour Party and by doing so, stabilizes the direction of neoliberalism. In the Indian case, there was no real opposition uh, to, uh, to the Congress Party, uh, which was uh, anti-neoliberal. And the Congress Party didn't have an organization structures. So it was really the leadership and the coterie around the leadership that basically decided the shift towards neoliberalism. So the dynastic family, in a certain sense, was the one that would play a much more disproportionate role in directing the policies of the Congress Party. And it is not surprising that uh, uh, this uh, also created considerable disillusionment and unhappiness with the Congress Party. Now, the important question here is that why is it that the Congress Party could not uh, have a coherent organization? Well, I gave you part of the answer in saying that it had transited towards a kind of patronage and clientele network. But having lost its rural structure of elites uh, controlling those below, it didn't have that. It didn't have a coherent structure. What it had, if you like, were different factions within it. And those different factions only being assuaged 
by whoever, by whenever the, BG, uh, the Congress party can come to power. And since there are different factions, you need some kind of an arbitrating mechanism. And that arbitrating mechanism was the family. And to this day, given the different factions, because there is not a strong, coherent ideology that the Congress party has, the family under Sonia Gandhi and Rahul Gandhi still has to play this kind of a role of arbitrating, except that the whole Congress structure and the whole Congress party has now declined so seriously. So we may be seeing not just the end of the dynasty, but also the big decline towards uh, almost nothing uh, of the Congress party. Uh, given its history and longevity, I'm not going to predict that it's going, uh, it's going to go into oblivion. But what I can say is that the Congress party is classically a kind of centrist party, much like the one-time centrist parties of Latin America, which uh, were crucial uh, in the uh, development of their societies after Second World War, pursuing, like the Congress Party, import-substituting industrialization, being broad centrist parties which had a left faction within it and having a right faction within it. And over time, as you have a failure of their project in Latin America, what do you see with these centrist parties? All kinds of centrist parties that you have in Bolivia and Peru and Brazil and so on. And Colombia, you have them either becoming... Uh, smaller, transmogrified into much smaller, explicitly right-wing rather than bourgeois centrist parties or going into oblivion. What we have seen in the case of the Congress Party is that it is transmogrified into a much smaller, explicitly right-wing party, but not yet gone into oblivion. A key moment in the BJP's rise, which you referred to earlier in the interview, was the Ram Janmambumi campaign, a, a massive... Hindu nationalist movement launched in the late 80s that led to the destruction of the 16th century Babri Masjid Mosque, which Hindu nationalists claimed was the birthplace of the deity, the Hindu deity Ram. Explain this campaign and how Hindu nationalists used it to mobilize Indians around Hindutva politics and to build BJP power during this period where the BJP was, was really nowhere near yet taking political power. Right. Well, the point is that this was the single largest, most sustained popular movement since the days of the independence struggle. It lasted for years. It was a massive movement huh? in North, West, Central, and some support even from the South and East, uh, uh, of course, here. Now, what did this do? It galvanized the Cato force. It connected the Cato force and growing and other sympathizers to everyday ordinary people in a variety of ways. They were extremely creative in finding ways to uh, uh, connect with ordinary people, saying that there should be a, a, a Ram temple that should be built there. We Cato's are going on religious procession. This was a period of tremendous religious processions of all kinds of uh, caravans, uh, all, uh, all sorts of creative things. Of course, uh, reinforced by an enormous amount of literature that came out, reinforced by the popularity of a, uh, of a TV serial on Ram and so on. And uh, giving ordinary people something to do by which they could connect to that. So, for example, saying that, look, let's have some consecrated bricks by which we should collect at that site in order to build a future Ram temple. 
So, of course, you get people to consecrate the bricks or help them. Or you have people making this and they say, look, these people are doing all kinds of worthy things for that. Please make some rotis and parantas for them so that they can have food while they are traveling uh, by foot over long distances and here and there. And then you'll get households preparing that and so on. In other words, connecting this thing. The amazing thing about this uh, uh, campaign is that even as it played on religious uh, sentiment, let's make a distinction between the average consciousness of those who supported the movement and the uh, leading elements, which are, of course, the uh, members and cadres of the Sangh Parivar, the RSS, and the VHP, which played a very big role in this in particular. Because of the cultural religious value. What do I mean by this? The average consciousness of most of the Hindu supporters for this movement was something like this. You know, there is a mosque there. We are not saying destroy the mosque. But what is wrong if there is another temple that is also built there? So you already got support for the idea that we must build a Ram temple. However, what determines the final goal uh, and outcome is not this average consciousness. It's the consciousness of the leading elements, which is always that we are going to destroy the, uh, the, the mosque because what is much more important than building is to destroy it. Right. And ultimately, that's the outcome. And in fact, that is something that uh, uh, people like Lenin understood very, very clearly when he made the point about how the direction of any movement is really determined not by the average consciousness, but by the consciousness of the most active elements. So... Uh, uh, I think this is one thing. And please note also that this is a construction of a mass movement around an issue whose negativity belonged to the 16th century. It is a constructed issue. In fact, you have this extraordinary situation in which you have large parts of the Indian diaspora in the United States, for example, who have left India, who have come to the United States, are going to stay and want to stay in the United States for all their lives and for their children, who have no intention of settling back in India, who are jumping onto this movement and telling that Muslims in India who are staying here are guilty in opposing this, this movement. It's quite an extraordinary state of affairs. And uh, everybody has forgotten that, in fact, in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, Hindu temples were never open. The overwhelming majority of Hindu temples were never open to all Hindus because of the caste system. They were either for some particular sect or they were of some particular caste. All this is actually forgotten. What I'm suggesting is that what you have is the most remarkable construction of anger, of grievance, where they had no business existing. And the fact that they have succeeded in creating this and creating this on a literally artificial rather than historical wrong of any kind, huh? on an artificially constructed wrong. And the fact that they had so much success is an indication, if you like, of how successful they have been. Because it's always much easier to create a large movement about something that is genuinely felt to be, uh, and is genuinely a historical wrong, as distinct from one which is an artificially constructed wrong. To what degree has the RSS and the BJP, to what degree have they had to remake Hinduism to suit their their politics? How, as a coherent, unitary 
religion? How does their vision of Hinduism and the one that they're they're attempting to make a reality, how does how does that compare to what Hinduism has been empirically, historically? Well, you see, there have been different understandings of what Hinduism is. One argument is that Hinduism has always been uh, characterized by what's called a high tradition and a low tradition. So you have a higher philosophical tradition and you have a lower tradition of practices of uh, various kinds. Yeah. That has been one view, if you like, uh, the great tradition and the little tradition, which you can talk about with regard to Islam or perhaps Christianity even or whatever. That has been one view. A second view has been that uh, Hinduism is a mosaic with so many different practices, but there are certain two or few uh, uh, singular things that cut across this mosaic and actually ensure that this mosaic fabric uh, remains stable. That's one. The third position, which I hold to, which I think is most accurate, that Hinduism actually is a congeries of different sects and practices which never knew anything about each other and which had no real connection. <laughs> if you like, what's happened is that the very term Hinduism huh, is uh, as a religion comes much, much later. Not in the in, in, uh, before the Common Era or even in, uh, up to the 14th or 15th century, according to uh, very prominent and respected historians, the word Hindu as a self-appellation for people in, uh, for people in India really begins in the um, in the 16th century. Historically, before that, the term Hindu comes from the word Sindhu, which of course was the expression that came from uh, Western Asia uh, as to the land beyond the Sindh River, the people of the uh, of the land beyond the, uh, the, the Sindh River, uh, Sindhu, and therefore Hindu, etc. Here, And um, this uh, really is the case. It's actually a construction of a, uh, of a supposedly singular religion, which didn't come about from the RSS or the BJP or the Sangh Parivar, but came about obviously over centuries, over since the 16th century, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, from a whole host of factors and so, uh, and so on. And of course, What's happened is that the RSS has been able to seize on this and promote it. And today, Hindutva is seen, uh, most people see themselves as belonging to some uh, religion called Hinduism, which has its own diversity of practices and so on, but seeing themselves as belonging to that here and accepting that there is. Is it in part a form of auto, auto-orientalism? Well, in a sense, it has uh, its, uh, its connections with what you're saying, because the idea of a singular Hinduism or a Hindu religion was really, uh, in many ways, a reflection of the understanding of religion that Europeans had earlier on, and which they could then, of course, impose on the Indian case. But it's also something that has been uh, constructed in the uh, Indian context by those within the national movement. Uh, before you can have, I mean, let's understand what happened during the National Movement period, because that's also the area where you have a construction of, uh, of a stronger sense of, of Hinduness. Remember, I said earlier I talked about composite nationalism. Yep. Well, what is colonialism? Colonialism represents a defeat for those who are colonized. In the 19th century, you begin to have a number of Indians who are now confronted with the reality that they have been defeated by colonialism. They have to have a sense of self-worth, if you like, uh, elites, uh, have a sense of self-worth. How do they get this sense of self-worth? How do they have a sense of themselves in the face of the defeat of colonialism? Well, they can't have it at the material level. They can't have it at the technological and military level because that the British had. 
So where is the area in which they can talk about themselves as having a sense of self-worth and a superiority in many ways that the British do not have? And that could only be in the area of culture, religion, and spirituality. And therefore, you have the beginnings of a construction of this idea of Hinduism as a remarkably tolerant religion, a common religion, a religion which did not have the same kind of propositional truth as the Semitic religions and therefore does not have the uh, horrors of uh, crusades and jihads and so on. And let's always remember that before you can have a political nationalism, you have to have some kind of cultural nationalism. And then what happens during the national movement period is that you have competing nationalisms. You have one which talks about uh, the unity of Hindus, the RSS perspective, which also some leaders within the uh, uh, Congress, like Sadar Patel and others, were very sympathetic to. And then you had another one, which was the idea of a composite nationalism, based on the idea that the remarkable thing about India is not so much that it was always Hindu, but that it was always so diverse. And therefore, you have had throughout the ages a unity in diversity in India. So you've got your unity of Hindus and your unity in diversity. But those who talk about a unity of diversity then have to point out or locate what is the source of this unity in diversity. And since, of course, it is supposed to be very, very old, it means it must predate the coming of Islam in India, which really comes from the uh, 7th, 8th century onwards. And therefore, it's much more inclined towards implying or ex explicitly saying that this is really connected to the wonder of Hinduism, of Brahmanical Hinduism. So you begin to see this kind of construction here. And then this construction gets accelerated uh, during the national movement period. And uh, after independence, even so, let me give you one simple example of this. Do you know that the 1931 census under the British said that uh, what we call tribals are animists? Their religion is animism. In the first census undertaken by anthropologists after India gets independence, your tribal population are now put under the category of Hindus. Yes, and of course now you have a whole process in which they are being Hinduized and so on. So, but my point is, of course, is that if you recognize that Hinduism is not a sing but a congeries of sex, that doesn't prevent the process by which these congeries of sex can come to see themselves of having a certain singularity and so on. And everybody is putting pressures in various ways and trying to find that. Yeah. And you get a sense of uh, solace uh, and support from being part of a larger religious fold and so on. In other words, uh, uh, the, this religious identity is constructed. In a way, there seems to be a religious parallel here to the history of nationalism in the terms of the rise of the modern nation state alongside colonialism requiring that decolonization take the form of, of anti-colonial nationalism, or seeming to require. Obviously, there was debate around that. And similarly, it seems almost that Hinduism has to become this you know coherent, unitary thing that it never was in order to exist in a, in a world where, where religious identity is, in many ways, shaped by monotheistic religions. Okay, uh... Here, actually, one thing that the crucial question is really the question of nationalism and nationalism and uh, the nation. And the question really is that nationalism is a construct, obviously. The nation is a modern construct. There is, however, a minority that insists that the nation, nationalism is a modern construct. It's obvious because it belongs to the era of mass politics, which is something that's modern. 
the nation state is a form of the state that is also modern. But there is dispute among uh, scholars about whether the nation is, a, uh, is old or new. The nation is cultural and political. We all agree. But there's a difference between the modernists who insist that, in fact, the political dimension of the nation is much more important than the cultural dimension. In contrast to those who insist that the cultural dimension is more important than the national dimension. So you have, if you like, different understandings of nationalism, ethnic, civic, something else also. But these are the two standard uh, uh, sort of uh, dichot uh, categorizations, ethnic and civic. I would prefer to talk about it as um, something like this, is that all nations, as you, know, as you know, as others have pointed out, invent a past for themselves. The question of a civic nationalism is that the civic nationalism tends to be far more tolerant and open than an essentialist nationalism. Let me put it slightly differently. There are two ways of looking at nationalism. One is to see it as something that belongs to the past as a kind of inheritance. If you see it as an inheritance, there is always going to be dispute about who are the proper inheritors and what is the proper inheritance. That inheritance, uh, that essentialism, if you like, can be religion, it can be a particular ethnicity, it can be language, it can be whatever, customs, blood, whatever. The second way of looking at nationalism is to say that it doesn't belong to the past, it belongs to the present and the future. And that is to say, nationalism will be what we make of it. The strength of the second position and of countries even like the United States and Australia and others, which are basically immigrant societies, is that there's far more scope for, be, for being you American or Australian in different ways. In other words, there are different ways of feeling and believing that you are an American or an Australian. But if you have an essentialist concept, what you're basically saying is that this is the most important, this is the only way in which you can feel truly Indian. And if you don't understand this and if you don't accept this, then you are in danger of weakening us and we will not tolerate it. And that, of course, is the kind of message, if you like, that uh, an Islamic state of Bangladesh will give to its Hindu minority or the Islamic state of Pakistan will give to its uh, Ahmadiyya. Ahmadiyyas, who is a sect that is not considered to be Muslim, how the RSS and many others in India will say to their Muslim minority. Yeah, yeah. Or if you like, how the Germans would say that you are Jews and therefore you're not truly German because that's based upon Aryanness or whatever. Or if you like, Margaret Thatcher saying that the culture of England is being swamped by Asians. Uh, or if you like, uh, those who still believe in a kind of white nationalism in the United States who see... Uh, Mexican immigrants or blacks is not truly American in the way that uh, white nationalists are. Although that's a declining force in the United States, I would assume. But of course, uh, Hindu nationalism is expanding in the uh, Indian context. Uh, if I could just uh, elaborate a little bit on this, uh, it's called uh, a sleeping beauty concept of, nas- uh, of nationhood. Can I elaborate a bit on this idea of the sleeping beauty of uh, hood of uh, Sleeping Beauty concept of nationhood. Can I elaborate on that? Please do. Okay. It's like this. You all know the story of Sleeping Beauty. Uh, this wonderful Sleeping Beauty was put to be- bed, well, for a Western audience, I don't need to explain it. What does it mean in the Indian context? It means that for the forces of Hindutva, the essential Sleeping Beauty, the beautiness of India, which has been slumbering for so long, was Hinduism. 
and then it needs to be awakened. And just as Prince Charming kissed Sleeping Beauty to awaken Sleeping Beauty, similarly the forces of Hindutva will give the kiss of politics to the Sleeping Beauty and awaken it so that more and more will understand. And just as Sleeping Beauty was put to sleep by the evil witch, the witch that actually put our Sleeping Beauty of Hinduness to sleep, was it the Turks? Was it the Afghans? Was it the Persians? Was it the Mughals? No, it, is, it was Muslims. Because when you say Muslims, you can combine all of them and you can make those who live in India as Muslims that have come from all sorts of sources, etc., as complicit and as the evil witch that must be paid back for causing this slumbering. It's a form of organic nationalism. It talks about nations existing in the ancient past, nations having an indelible character which is based on some fixed cultural property which may be sleeping but can be awakened and so on. And this organic nationalism, incidentally, like you were earlier implied, actually comes from the 19th century German romantic tradition and got imported into India. So ironically enough, the, uh, uh, the views of the RSS and those who support that Hindu nationalism doesn't even come from in, uh, uh, the Indian past. It really comes from what is adapted and adopted uh, from the West. Which requires rewriting, this massive rewriting of Indian history. And now the BJP is literally attempting to rewrite that history. Yeah, and, uh, and, for the, uh, and, and the first speech that Modi gave when he became prime minister in, in, in 2014 was to talk about 12,000 years of foreign rule. So in other words, he's not interested in British. The British didn't come in the 16th, well, I mean, the East India Company came in the 16th century, yes. But he's making it 1,200 uh, centuries ago because he wants to indict, above all, the key foreigners, which are the, uh, invasions, that, uh, uh, the, uh, the invasions that came. Uh, in the past. Uh, but India was never a united place in which you could talk about invasions of India as a whole. It itself was just a conglomerate of so many different things. It's a name that we give to a part of the world which has so many different kingdoms and so on. And all of these kingdoms were, had connections with each other, this, that, and all the rest of it. So you see that uh, that's really the... Uh, uh, yeah, and the rewriting of history is taking place now in various ways. So the the BJP and RSS, they think of the sort of outside occupation of India as dating back even before the Mughals? Oh, yes. I mean, the Mughals come later. You have the Afghans, you have the Turks, you have the, the Persians. I mean, if you look at uh, different rulers who've come, they're coming from different parts. So, yes. yes they, uh, so where's the, pri- where's the primordial free, free India? When, does that, when did that exist? That existed in, before the, uh, the Muslims came. And... Parts of India where Muslims came, they didn't even come in the wake of, uh, of, of, of you know, rule by kings or anything like that. They came as a result of trade. Therefore, among the earliest uh, Muslims came as a result of trade between uh, Arabia and, uh, and, the, and the sort of uh, western peninsula, western seaboard uh, of India uh, in places like Kerala, for example. You have uh, Christians coming to India uh, before Christians uh, uh, went to Western Europe. It's coming in the um, what uh, third or fourth, uh, third or fourth century uh, CE after the birth of Christ, after the Christian era. So, in fact, you have many countries uh, which are Christian uh, becoming Christian much later than Christians coming to India. You've always had these various movements, this, that, etc. Buddhism and others are accepted as part of India because one thing which uh, Hindutva argues 
is that there are religions which are indigenous to India and they are really part or connected to Hinduism. So they're okay. But those people whose uh, motherland and whose religion is not indigenous to India are not really Indians. So for example, Buddhists will be accepted uh, as part of uh, indigenous to India and so on. Jains would be accepted as they are. So they don't have that many problems uh, with them as they will have with, uh, and Sikhs, but, uh, but they will have, of course, with Muslims, Christians uh, to a lesser extent, but the population of Christians is only about two and a half percent. The population of Muslims before partition was about one third and now around 14 percent. And uh, they have problems with communists who are supposed to have a religion which is foreign and uh, who do not owe uh, fealty because of their internationalism uh, to the Indian nation. Speaking of the, of, the, of the partition, to what extent was the 1947 partition ending British rule and creating India and Pakistan, which killed, I've read estimates of between one and two million people and sent many, many millions more moving from their homes across the new international border. To what degree was that a foundational moment of transition from colonialism to a post-colonialism, a post-colonial India that would in many ways come to be defined by repeated acts of communal violence? Well, two things. It was very, very significant, as you say, it, but it was not something that was guaranteed. And the primary responsibility for this, unlike much of what is conventional history in India, was really a, has to be assigned to the Congress Party, which was not prepared to accept a much looser confederation which Jinnah, the leader of, uh, of Pakistan, the first leader of Pakistan, would have accepted, but was prepared to go along with partition because it wanted a much more centralized and united India in which the Congress would be dominant. So uh, a lot of the blame for partition uh, doesn't really lie, although it is certainly shared, uh, does not lie, in my view, primarily uh, with Jinnah, which is not to excuse his own communal appeal, which of course comes later as a way of also strengthening his leverage and bargaining power and so on, but doesn't, that doesn't justify it. But uh, he was always more open to the idea of a, a confederation, but very much worried that uh, in a Muslim and a Hindu majority uh, country, what would be the situation for Muslims? And ultimately, of course, we have the tragedy of, uh, of partition, which uh, is blamed uh, on Pakistan, in most cases, not just by the Sangh or the BJP or the RSS, but by many others who would see themselves as liberals and, uh, and so on. And that becomes uh, an important uh, moment in terms of anger, uh, even if it is submerged uh, 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 as to what Pakistan has done or what Muslims did and so on. Uh, it's unfair in many, many ways, but yes, uh, it has been a defining aspect of uh, post-independent India. It did not immediately lead to communal violence because of the horror of what had happened over there. And the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi actually bought time uh, so that you had a period in which you had lots of uh, Indians, Congress Party as the inheritor of what was called the composite nationalism, recognizing the dangers of what could happen. You didn't really have that, except that in 1948, you did have a massive pogrom in, uh, in the province of Hyderabad, 
related to the question of uniting India. But after 1948, it's really in the early 60s that you begin to have more significant communal riots and also disturbingly, the participation of police and paramilitary forces in independent India and assaults on Muslims as well. Uh, Paul Brass, uh, the American scholar, had provided uh, statistics which he was able to get from official Indian sources up to the late 80s, in which it was pointed out that over 70-75% of victims in communal violence are Muslims, although they constitute only 13-14% of the population. Since then, it is not easy to get uh, statistics uh, which would give you a religious breakdown of victims in communal violence. But it is very safe to say the overwhelming majority of uh, victims of communal violence is, uh, are Muslims, which does not mean that there have not been communal incidents and acts and episodes in which a significant number of Hindus uh, have died, or that uh, there have not been a few occasions on which such assaults have been led by uh, people from uh, the Muslim community. What is the political function for the Hindu right of communal violence? When we think about kind of mass riots anywhere, we tend to assume that they have a kind of spontaneous, almost pre or extra political character. But you write that, that that's not exactly right when it comes to communal violence in India. Not at all. Uh, communal violence always requires... Preparation requires a trigger and requires a follow-through. An environment has to be uh, created of, uh, of tension, of horror law, which is deliberately done. A trigger usually takes place, often uh, constructed, sometimes uh, just something there which is relatively minor but can be the spark. And then you also have people who mobilize. The idea of spontaneity as being something that is counterposed to organization is basically mistake. Even in the most spontaneous of what we call events, there will always be organization of some sort. But communal rights on a large scale are not. And communal rights organized by the RSS uh, BJP are for political purposes. And therefore, there is a political control over them. A lot of work has been done. Stephen Wilkinson, for example, has done which has pointed out that most communal riots involving uh, against Muslims and so on take place in those states which have not a very small proportion of Muslims, but not a large proportion of Muslims either. That communal riots, the frequency of them or their occasions are very often very, very considerably related to uh, forthcoming elections. So you have a whole series of factors here. Most communal riots until recently took place in uh, uh, smaller towns. Communal riots are also occasions, or communal programs are also occasions in which there can be paybacks by uh, traders who can benefit from finishing off of their competitors or the acquisition by force of uh, property and, uh, and so on, which can then be distributed. All kinds of things. In other words, there are also material factors and benefits that can, that can accrue from communal rights if you're on the winning side. So, so uh, when you look at this here, and what's very interesting is that the difference between the last five, six years and earlier, where you had, uh, for example, 2002, I was part of a, uh, a fact-finding group which went there and found out. And it was very, very clear. 
that uh, uh, Narendra Modi sought to benefit from it. Some of the statements he made were extraordinary. Uh, he rationalized and justified uh, what happened. The trigger was supposed to be uh, a burning of a coach with Hindus. A train uh, coach. Uh, uh, a train coach in Hindus. In fact, we investigated that. And that too was a very serious provocation, uh, uh, which I won't go into in our detail, etc. But so much was made about it. And the bodies were deliberately brought into the big city, capital city of Gujarat and paraded to arouse anger and so on. And uh, uh, there are statements by those who have now been persecuted that uh, Narendra Modi said, uh, let the Hindus vent their anger. And this was something that was uh, also reported to us indirectly when we were carrying out our fact-finding report, which did come out later and which we did distribute to, to other people. But he, he made statements like to every action, there is a, a reaction, a kind of justification for the pogrom that took place. Places were set on fire through the use of uh, uh, these, um, uh, what do you call them, these gas, uh, gas cylinders. But gas cylinders had to be collected beforehand. And they were collected beforehand and then taken over places. Mobs were organized systematically. And uh, I mean, what can you, I, I, can you say? Later on, when you have displaced uh, uh, Muslims in their uh, tens of thousands in, uh, in, in, in these desperate camps, you have Modi visiting and say that these camps are baby producing centers, attacking Muslims for their supposedly greater fertility and having uh, many wives and therefore many children wow. and all this nonsense. And all of these things. And he gets, uh, he's got away with it. So I'm saying uh, here, now what's happened, of course, is that in this period, there is no need for the RSS to have big communal uh, riots because capital isn't that happy with that because it disrupts business. Once in a while, it's okay. But what has happened now, which did not happen before, is the normalization and banalization of, uh, of micro-level uh, attacks on Muslims in various ways here. So you have assaults on Muslims here, there, everywhere, assaults on others who are seen as enemies, rationalists, for example. And overwhelmingly cases, uh, the assailants get away with it. There is collaboration by the police, by the local judiciary, by all kinds of things. Given uh, Modi's recent visit to the United States of America and the big hoo-ha that was uh, uh, made about it, uh, people forget that even the United States, after the 2002 program, which was enormously successful for the BJP and uh, for Modi, he was not allowed to come into the United States. But then what do you expect? Uh, uh, the sort of uh, normality of what is called real politic, whether the countries are democratic or not democratic, is of course... Uh, to see what you can get out of your relations with each countries and so on. I won't go into that, but I will just point out one thing. Three crucial events have been central to the BJP gaining wider popularity. And please note that these three central events are all symbolic of political violence in one way or the other. And they have been crucial in expanding the support of the BJP and the Sangh Parivar beyond the ranks of its faithful. Number one, the 1992 destruction of Babri Masjid. Number two, the 1998 Pokhran nuclear test explosions, after which India becomes a declared nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons power. And 2002, the Muslim pogrom against Muslims, which actually propels Modi to greater heights of popularity in Gujarat, greater heights of popularity within the RSS and makes him the 
prime ministerial candidate for the uh, Sangh family of association that I call the Sangh Parivar. And these are all seen in their lexicon, the RSS Hindutva lexicon, but beyond that as well, as expressions of the path towards a stronger. It's an extraordinary state of affairs. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is, without apology, The Abortion Struggle Now by Jenny Brown. With an anti-abortion majority on the Supreme Court and several states attempting to outlaw abortion altogether, many activists are on the defensive, hoping to hold on to reproductive rights in a few places and cases. This spirited book shows how feminism can start winning again. Jenny Brown uncovers a century of legal abortion in the United States until 1873, recalls women's experiences in the illegal days, and shows how the women's liberation movement of the 1960s really won abortion rights. She draws inspiration and lessons from the radicals of the Red Stockings, the Army of Three, and the Jane Collective putting together a roadmap for today's organizers from the black feminist argument for reproductive justice, the successful fight to make the morning-after pill available over-the-counter, and the recent mass movement to repeal Ireland's abortion ban. Brown argues that politically conservative nonprofits have been setting the agenda, emphasizing rare tragic cases and relying on the rhetoric of choice and privacy. Instead, it is time to return to the fundamental ideas that won legal abortion in the first place. Women publicly telling the full truth of their own experience, demanding repeal of all abortion restrictions, and showing how abortion and birth control are the key demands in the struggle for women's freedom. Without apology, The Abortion Struggle Now by Jenny Brown. Out now from Verso Books. As you just mentioned, a major theme for the BJP, and I suppose for Congress as well, has been to make India a strong country. This is visible from the failed war against China in 1962, repeated wars with Pakistan, the repression in Kashmir and against Naxalite Maoist rebels in the east, the successful quest to become a nuclear power and the refusal of Pakistani overtures for denuclearizing South Asia. Even maybe we could include recent advances in space exploration. What is this idea of post-independence India needing to be a strong even masculinized India, something that is almost precisely the opposite of the image of India, at least as seen from the West, embodied in Gandhi in the nonviolent resistance movement. First of all, uh, you're right in saying that the vision that uh, guided Nehru and his successors is different from that of Gandhi. 
Gandhi didn't really think much about uh, uh, international affairs and foreign policy, apart from seeing himself as a kind of exemplar that should be followed everywhere and so on. Uh, in fact, uh, his role in what was known as the Khilafat movement, his idea of how to bring about a composite nationalism was that you have to have Hindu-Muslim unity, which meant that he uh, supported the struggle by certain sections of the Muslim community in India when the uh, caliph in uh, Turkey was overthrown uh, of the Ottoman Empire. Now, that's a pretty odd statement to make because it indicates that for Gandhi, what was important was to forge an Indian unity on the basis of existing religious identities rather than on the basis of a secular cutting across of these religious identities. And he certainly wasn't bothered about the fact that although India was struggling for independence from Britain, so too were many uh, countries in the Arab world. And many countries wanted to get rid of the yoke of the Ottoman Empire. And here you are supporting the establishment of, uh, of the Caliph and all. So his own view on international affairs was both limited and partial. But uh, he certainly wasn't a votary of the kind of uh, real politic, aggressive, highly uh, militarized Indian nationalism that emerges later on. Nehru uh, was a votary and one of the principal spokespersons for the non-aligned movement. The most important thing to understand about the third world non-aligned movement, and I've written about this, is that there's no real such thing as the third world because within the members of the third world non-aligned movement, there were a number of countries that were considerably advanced and could not really be called the third world, that there was no real thing, such thing called non-alignment and that there was no such thing called a movement. Non-alignment was basically a posture, many, in many ways hypocritical, adopted by the national bourgeoisies of newly independent countries uh, in Asia and Africa and elsewhere to maximize their maneuvering space, even though most of these countries were aligned with either the West or the East. Hmm? India was less aligned, so it could pretend to be, it could claim to be the more non-aligned of the non-aligned. But given its position on Kashmir, was certainly more dependent on the Soviet Union for support in the UN and others when criticized or opposed for its uh, history of, uh, of behavior vis-a-vis uh, Kashmir or, or elsewhere and so on. So there, but that, in that whole period of what was called non-alignment, India does make sure, under Nehru and his successors, that India must be unified. And if this means using violence and force to prevent secession from the British, the territories established by British India for independent India, such as in Nagaland or in the question of Kashmir, which is another story, it was certainly prepared to do so. People forget that uh, India as one of the few countries that completely swallowed one neighbor, divided another. It completely swallowed Sikkim, a protectorate, which is still a separate country, in 1975. And uh, its role in the Bangladesh national liberation struggle was certainly motivated by strategic calculations about weakening Pakistan, which is why it, invaded, it intervened when it did, when in fact the leaders on the ground in the Bangladesh struggle was happy with the support of India but was saying that give us one year and the liberation of Bangladesh will be done by Bangladesh itself. Uh, one of the best books on this is by Larry Lifshultz 
on the unfinished revolution and text. And of course, if you look at material of that period, you will find that that's the case. And since then, the Indian government, uh, more so in the post-Nehru period, has played a role in all kinds of activities. It's sent its troops to the Maldives uh, in 1988 uh, in a civil war, which has no business to intervene in. Because it was a transfer of power from, from the British, it took a very strong paternalistic attitude toward the Highland Crest Kingdoms. Sikkim was uh, absorbed. Bhutan and Nepal were treated quite roughly. My point is that uh, even on the Chinese border, it could have been resolved if the Indians had not adopted the kind of thinking or policy which came from uh, the fact that its struggle was to transfer power and therefore it adopted, if you like, the perspectives of the British and the understanding of the British as to what were the territorial boundaries of, the, of India. There's a lot more to say on this. I'm, not, uh, I, I'm deeply critical of the Chinese for their behavior in Tibet, as I am of India, in their uh, refusal to accept the independence of Nagaland. Uh, in fact, the leader of Nagaland, Fizo, was told by Gandhi when he was, said he wanted independence for Nagaland. Nagaland was never part of pre-colonial uh, India, not even part of what's called by the RSS Akhand Bharat. Gandhi's reply was that insofar as we are fighting for independence from Britain, how can one say no to you if you want your own independence? But of course, this is something that the Indians uh, uh, certainly did afterwards. And Gandhi's own limitations comes across in the sense that he applauds Despite being the so-called apostle of non-violence, he applauded the use of force in Kashmir in the 1948 situation. Of course, the problem in Kashmir has been that Pakistan and India both have always seen this as a bilateral issue and neither of them were prepared to accept that the Kashmiris have a right to self-determination and if they want independence, so be it. Which is one of many similarities between the the Kashmir situation in, in Palestine in the sense that Palestine for so long was was treated as a conflict between Israel and Arab states rather and Palestinians had to come forward and assert that it was a national liberation movement for Palestinians not a, a diplomatic bar- bargaining chip between between rival states no I, I would disagree with you because what uh, in the case of the uh, Palestinians, it, it was in some respects and one respect very significant. And that is to say that after the, um, uh, the end of the First World War, you had, this, uh, you had the 1922 League of Nations mm-hmm. giving France and Britain a mandate over the various territories in uh, what is called the Middle East. And this mandate was a form of indirect rule in which there was the ultimate promise of an ultimate independence uh, to these territories. So all of these territories were in fact through the mandate assured or promised of an independence and uh, uh, including Palestine. And whereas other countries did get independence, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan and so on, this was denied to the uh, Palestinians and there was a much stronger collaboration of British imperialism uh, in helping uh, migration of Jews to, to Palestine and the role that they play later on here. So uh, the similarity is not quite there, but if you are trying to uh, point out the fact that they are occupied territories, uh, yes, they are occupied territories, but you'll have a lot more people because of the peculiar history of Palestine, you'll have a lot more people in the West and others 
who will accept that that is an occupied territory uh, and that uh, Israel only now because of the rise of the right and Trump and all and because of course the leadership of Western Europeans are so pathetic they are getting away with the idea that uh, it's uh, that they can expand their control over what is still called the occupied territories in in officialese in the UN and elsewhere but you don't have an officialese or informal recognition by other countries that uh, Kashmir is an occupied territory by uh, by India as distinct from progressive groups and all saying that it's occupied and so on so there is this uh, important difference here but in terms of repression brutality well one difference between Palestine and Kashmir which uh, which uh, does not redound to the credit of India is that the ratio of armed personnel to civilians in Kashmir is greater than that in the Palestinian occupied territories or anywhere else in the world. You write that there's 750,000 armed person Indian armed personnel in, in Kashmir. Yeah, that would include police, paramilitaries and armed forces. Yes. Incredible. Um, yes, it is 1 to 1 to 10 uh, whatever overwhelmingly in the valley. Uh, uh, not in the whole province, Jammu and Kashmir, but overwhelmingly in the Muslim majority valley. Uh, and that has been there, and that has been there for a long time. Uh, but uh, uh, the Western European governments uh, and uh, will be saying, yeah, well, this is an internal matter because the United States has relations with Pakistan and it needs both Pakistan and India for its geopolitical interests. It tries to play a little bit of a balancing game, but the number one spouse is India and the number two spouse is Pakistan and the United States is happy to maintain this situation because they serve non-substitutable geopolitical interests. Pakistan uh, westwards uh, vis-a-vis uh, the Middle East. Afghanistan. And Afghanistan and the Middle East, Central Asia and, and West Asia. Huh? And India uh, southwards and eastwards in, as part of the containment of China. The geopolitical situation, though, seems incredibly unstable and contradictory, to put it mildly, given that Pakistan and India have fought so many wars, have recently had live armed conflict with each other, and are both nuclear armed and have nuclear first strike policies that make it quite terrifyingly plausible that that a conventional armed conflict could... could, could slip into to massive nuclear war. How possibly can they both be U.S. allies? Is this a stable <laughs> stable situation? Well, uh, uh, look, uh, Israel has nuclear weapons and the Americans have no problem in, in seeing it as a very stable ally. Huh? And, you know, this Israel was a country more than any other nuclear weapons power was the close, came closest after 1945 to using its nuclear weapons against non-nuclear countries. I'm talking about 1973. So uh, let's not, uh, and Britain has nuclear weapons and also the, for the Americans, it's uh, good, uh, good uh, nuclear uh, powers and the bad nuclear powers. And uh, it wants to, here of course, it's aware of the kind of uh, danger and the tension, it doesn't want that. But yes, it does uh, have, uh, you have within the American foreign policy and security establishment, the question of how best to deal with these two countries, because they do serve certain interests. You yourself pointed out Afghanistan, Pakistan. Which of the Islamic countries in the world has, had, uh, has nuclear weapons? Which Islamic country in the world has the biggest pool of scientific and tactical personnel? Which uh, uh, Islamic country has uh, 
the most professional armed forces and which uh, Islamic country has been a long-time ally of the United States. It's not Egypt. It's not Saudi Arabia. It's Pakistan. So I'm just pointing out certain assets that Pakistan has and for the Americans to play double game and all this thing. And by the way, I must make one correction to you even as I endorse fully your fear and concern about uh, uh, the possibility of, uh, an, uh, of, uh, uh, of a nuclear conflict between the two countries. Uh, you said that both have no first use. Technically speaking, India has a no... Uh, uh, you said that both are, are committed to first use. No. Technically speaking, India has a no first use doctrine. Uh, but this no first use doctrine is more qualified and weaker than the Chinese no first use doctrine. The only other nuclear power today that has such this thing. But of course, your Indian experts will never point this out because China is the baddie, not India. Of course, both are baddies. All nuclear in Pakistan, power. in Pakistan is no first. No, no Pakistan's Pakistan policy, no I believe, first. is that they would, they might use it against ta- so-called tactical nuclear weapons. Yes against Indian, India's much larger conventional forces. That is right. That is quite right. But what Pakistan has also done is that, one, of course, is that one should understand that the Pakistan acquisition of nuclear weapons was much more India-centered. It was, in fact, only India-centered. India has it, therefore we have to have it. The Indian government had to do, uh, went in for nuclear weapons, and this is something that I predicted. And I, sus- I expect that I was, I was really one of the only persons in public domain to predict this. I said that if the BJP comes to power, they'll go in for nuclear weapons. And the reason I said this had nothing to do with China or Pakistan, but had everything to do with the ideology of the, of the BJP and the RSS about how to build a strong India, Muscular India. In fact, the Jansung, the earlier incarnation of the Bharatiya Janta Party, had in the late 50s, before China got the bomb, wanted India to have the bomb as part of its ideology of following its uh, ideologue mentor, Savarkar, Hinduize all politics and militarize Hindudom. So they've always wanted it. In 1974, when India exploded its first test and took the position of being, a, a, what, what's called it, a, a nuclear threshold power with uh, keeping the option open, all the parties, including the mainstream left, supported the idea of India keeping the option, neither exercising it nor uh, uh, ending it. Huh? But the one party that opposed the opposition and said that India must have it was the BJP. And when it came to power for 13 days, in 1996, it wanted to have it, but it only lasted 13 days. And then in 1998, when it comes as a leader of a coalition force, none of the coalition partners know, knew of its decision to go in for the, uh, for the test. But the RSS, which is not elected by the Indian public, most certainly knew about it and was privy to it and was part of the decision making to go ahead with it. So they, if you like, countries go in for nuclear weapons either because of... Uh, changing self-perceptions or because of threat perceptions. The United States did not go nuclear because of a threat perception. It was the first country to go nuclear. And after 1944, it knew that Germany was not having it. It nevertheless went and had it and did it to show that it was the tough guy on the block and that on the world block and that it had to send a message to the communists of the Soviet Union and so on. Britain and France took nuclear weapons not because of threat perception, but much more to maintain themselves at the high table uh, of the world powers because they were the declining colonial powers. China, uh, Soviet Union went in because of threat perception. The Americans have it, we have to have it. The Chinese in 1964 had a Sino-Soviet conflict and bad relations with the U.S. They wanted it because of threat perception. The U.S. 
and the Soviets had it. The Indians do it in 1998, when in fact relations with China were improving, because like the US, Britain and France, much more to do with changing self-perceptions. Pakistan, to do with threat perceptions. In fact, as you pointed out, in the period between 1987 or so, or so when Pakistan got the bomb, and 1998, it never had a test to match the 1974 test. It made a series of proposals to India to denuclearize, to which the Indian response would be, no, 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 we have to worry about China. Uh, and whatever. But of course, after, after, uh, after the, the, the test explosions, when Pakistan also goes nuclear, it's very much worried about the greater conventional superiority. And like you have said, has said that if India advances in its conventional weapons and so on, they will reserve the right to use nuclear weapons on Indian soldiers in its territory. To which the Indian response has said that if you attack Indian soldiers anywhere, there'll be a full-scale nuclear assault. And so the point is that uh, uh, both are crooks. Both are shameful. Uh, both are nuclear crooks. The idea that there are something called responsible nuclear powers is ridiculous. Hmm? But the bigger crook and the initial crook is India. And the second crook and also crook is Pakistan. And because India is the initial crook doesn't mean that you are justified in Pakistan being the second crook. That's a different matter here. But uh, the danger is a very real one. And the reason why the danger is a very real one is not because India or Pakistan will calculatedly decide to use a first strike. The reality is much more dangerous in the sense that it's connected to what can be called an escalation dynamic. This is the only part of the world now that has had a continuous hot-cold war since their independence. The Cold War between Russia and the U.S. ended. It may now be beginning again, but at least there was a hiatus. There's been no such serious hiatus there. Plus, unlike the relations between Russia, the Soviet Union, and the United States, these are two neighbors uh, territorially connected to each other, which have had four hot wars. And the danger of a hot war is very simple. If you have conventional conflict of some particular kind, it can escalate into a bigger conflict. And then what will happen is that two sides, which to begin with, do not think of or do not want and do not think of using their nuclear weapons, now have to start thinking that maybe the other side is going to use their nuclear weapons, in which case we must prepare our nuclear weapons. And then this tension can raise here. And in 1999, when you had the fourth Kargil war, both sides actually prepared their nuclear weapons for use. So my point is that the danger is there of an escalation dynamic of our tension. And this is reinforced, if you like, and the danger of this has been highlighted, sorry, the danger of this has been highlighted and the possibility of such a situation highlighted is A, related to the extreme hubris of the RSS in India that we have to teach Pakistan a lesson. There's a great anger at, in India, not just confined to the RSS, but among even liberals and others in India that is very much against the hyphenation of India and Pakistan. How dare you compare this small little country like Pakistan to India? And we have to show that we are a major world power. But in order for us to show that we are a major world power, we have to be a major regional power. And here the damn Pakistanis are a huge problem. And so what happens? You have for the first time, as a result of a conventional conflict or a skirmish between the two, very recently in Modi's first term, uh, just before the elections in February 2019, and that helped him to win the May 2019 elections. What did you have? You have India being the first first time in the history since 1945 of one nuclear power making a 
deep inner penetration and air assault on the territory of another nuclear power. They went deep into and attacked uh, uh, the territory in Balakot. The Pakistanis said that there was no, uh, it was a failed attack, there was no such thing, etc. On the Indian side, they sent in their air force. This is really the first time. And this was in retaliation for a, an attack on Indian forces in Kashmir. Uh, in Kashmir, but this was an attack which was a suicide bomb carried out by a local Kashmiri youth who was also part of the uh, Jaishi Muhammad group, which has uh, its headquarters. And the Jaishi Muhammad group declared that he was part of that and all that. So then the Indians, ignoring the fact that this is a Kashmiri youth and whatever is alignment, it's an expression of the frustration and anger of the Kashmiris at their ongoing repression, took this uh, as an occasion to send a political message to Pakistan by sending its uh, air deep into that territory and attacking it here. And uh, uh, there have been this, and this is really the first time that and two nuclear powers, one of them has actually sent its air force to make a conventional attack on others. Things quietened down because one uh, 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 Indian fighter plane uh, uh, was brought down in Pakistan, but the pilot of that fighter plane was released by Imran Khan, so as to assuage the matters and so on. But the point is that these relations between India and Pakistan are tension-filled that uh, the aggressive nationalism and the uh, Imran Khan's need to try to uh, present himself as a strong authoritarian figure means that you also have an aggressive nationalism developing over there. And this face-off between two aggressive belligerent nationalisms, both in their own way influenced by religious extremisms or forces of religious extremism, much more in India than in Pakistan, although one shouldn't undercut that, they are the most important force is the military. Here the, in India, the more important force uh, is religious extremism uh, as part of the ideology of the, of the government as well as of forces uh, outside it. So the danger is a conventional skirmish escalating into a more serious conventional conflict with the higher potential now of it escalating into a nuclear exchange, which one hopes will not happen. One is not saying it's certain. But the dangers of that have risen that much. Looking back at this long history of, of wars, nuclear weapons, repression in Kashmir and against Naxalites, was there a Hindu nationalism that was sort of formally present in Congress's foreign and security policies that was ultimately conducive to the rise of, of the BJP, even as Congress presented itself as a, as a secular party was its foreign and security policy fundamentally kind of Hindutva light or something? No, I, I would say that its foreign policies have increasingly moved in the direction of fairly standard uh, real politic considerations and how India must become a stronger country. And it's moved towards consolidating the U.S., the partnership with the United States and consolidating a strategic relationship with Israel. Uh, so that is something that, of course, the BJP latched onto. But it's not so much the uh, Hindutva or semi-Hindutva-like character of the Congress Party in its foreign policy, no. But it is certainly the soft saffronization. Saffron is the color of Hindu, uh, the forces of Hindutva. Soft saffronization, soft Hindutva policies domestically of the Congress Party that certainly paved the way and made it much easier for the acceptability of the, uh, of the, BJP, uh, of the, of the BJP and the Sangh here. In foreign policy, the difference is that in the case of uh, 
Sangh and the BJP, its anti-Muslimness is foundational uh, to its whole ideology. Anti-Muslimness is not foundational to uh, the Congress uh, thinking or policies, although it's uh, from time to time an element in their domestic policy. In their foreign policy, their connection with Israel was for Israel to be a conduit to consolidate its relationship with the United States, and why not? But the B- BJP and the Sangh adds an anti-Muslim flourish to its relationship with the BJP. You will find uh, in the hi- history of the writings of the RSS, it's considerable admiration uh, for the formation of Israel. And I think it's important to understand that even if you compare the racism of Western European far-right forces, or not just far-right forces, the Islamophobia that is growing in in the West, uh, it's important to understand that the earlier racism of Western Europe was based on biological skin color. The newer racism of Europe is no longer based on biological skin color, but is much more connected, is much more cultural, and therefore, if you like, anti-Muslim, anti-Islam and constructed now. But even so, you'll find in the US and among the governments of Western Europe a distinction between the good Muslim and the bad Muslim. And the good Muslim countries are Saudi Arabia, which is in fact the most extremely reactionary form of Islam practice there. But that doesn't matter. It's an ally. But in the case of uh, Hindutva, anti-Muslimness and anti-Islam is foundational in a way that it isn't quite the same uh, in Europe. In fact, Zionism is not anti-Islamic or anti-Muslim. Zionism is fundamentally anti-Palestinian. But in the current climate of Islamophobia, Zionism and Zionist forces, Netanyahu and Gantz and all the rest of them, are perfectly happy to jump on and to piggyback on uh, current Islamophobia. But Hindutva is anti-Islamic, anti-Islamic. You can't say that about uh, Congress. Congress plays soft Hindutva politics. But there's only one political force in India, not even the other regional political parties that also from time to time have alliances with the BJP and also pursue soft Hindutva politics and make ugly compromises. The one force which is determined relentlessly to establish a Hindu rashtra is the Sangh Parivar and the BJP. This is not the case with other parties in India, certainly not the case of the mainstream left, let alone forces further left. You write that, quote, a successful hegemonic ideology will mask contradictory interests while offering some unified sense of belonging to the majority. And you write that the BJP, uh, amongst other things, has recruited a, quote, lumpen aspiration OBC social base. OBC meaning other backward castes. Yeah, other backward castes are, if you like, the, the middle caste between the lower castes, the lowest castes and the higher castes. That's what OBCs stand for. They've also appropriated the legendary Dalit leader, Ambedkar, which is somewhat bizarre at face value, given that Ambedkar converted to Buddhism because he believed that there was no path to freedom for Dalits under Hinduism. How has the BJP built this cross-caste coalition? And does that coalition hold contradictions that might ultimately be exploited by the opposition to the BJP by the left? Well, one is that the uh, caste, uh, there are two aspects of it. One, of course, is how is it that they've been able to do that when Ambedkar, the leader of the, of the, uh, the, the, the iconic figure of, of Dalits, of uh, untouchables, 
uh, went uh, went towards Buddhism, and um, well, how have they been? Uh, how have they been able to, to to appropriate it? And what about the possible uh, reaction of anti-caste struggles in creating a stumbling block for them? I mean, this is the way I would interpret uh, uh, what you're uh, what you're saying. Correct. Um, just by way of contrast, just by way of contrast, do you know what is even more astonishing? And that is that the BJP has appropriated as one of its heroes a person called Bhagat Singh, who was a very popular figure because of his uh, resistance to the British, as uh, not in the Gandhian manner, but in his willingness to fight uh, with force. In fact, he put a bomb in the Legislative Assembly, uh, which didn't kill anybody, but uh, as a way was, uh, but was there. And he's considered a, a great figure for his defiance. A young, defiant revolutionary, um, uh, Bhagat Singh s- saw himself as an atheist and a Marxist. Uh, <laughs> but he's appropriated because he's still a very uh, uh, important figure for many, many people in India. Uh, of a defiant, vibrant, revolutionary figure committing his life to the struggle against colonialism. So, on one hand, uh, the BJP and the Sangh, precisely because it did not play any role in the national movement has to try and appropriate nationalist icons and heroes and heroines of that period in order to uh, to to rationalize its, itself as a great nationalist force now coming to the question of uh, ambedkar and uh, hinduism ambedkar was completely fed up with brahmanical hinduism and decided that the only way to for the caste system to be uh, you know, to fade away was to uh, escape Hinduism by converting to Buddhism. Now, uh, Hindutva has no problems with Buddhism because it is uh, uh, an indigenous religion to India, and therefore it says it can come under the uh, fold and so on. So, on one hand, there is no problems with uh, Buddhism there. On the other hand, Ambedkar's strategy of trying to escape the Brahmanical-based caste system by converting to Buddhism, has not really succeeded. The proportion of Buddhists in India, since the time Ambedkar did it, to now, has remained roughly the same. What this has meant is that the assertion of lower caste has largely been within the Hindu fold, and many of them have seen some merit and some sense of greater dignity by identifying themselves within this broader Hindu fold which means that they become much more susceptible to many of the messages of the uh, Hindutva, while Hindutva itself has been clever enough to appropriate not just Ambedkar, but to appropriate all kinds of local, regional folk heroes and heroines of uh, uh, the lowest caste and say that they too are people that they admire and accept and that we are all part of one greater brotherhood and so on. And this is how the BJP has managed to take advantage of this huge flourishing of regional politics and of middle and, and lower caste politics that emerged in, I think, the 80s or, or 90s as, the, the, as Congress's hold was loosening. One might think that this would have created just a new political center of gravity, but, but in fact, the BJP has really appropriated these new political forces. To a, to a considerable extent, I want to come to the second part. First, first, before I come to the second part about the tensions in the caste system, or maybe let me put it this way. 
uh, I've just pointed out what the, BG, uh, what the BJP and the Sangh Parivar and, and the RSS are doing from their point, uh, from their perspective, from their side. Now let's look at what the lower caste movements have been doing from their side. Their assertions have done three things. One is that it's given a greater sense of dignity and self-respect for lower caste. Good. The second thing it has done is that it has also, through the policy of reservations in government education and jobs, uh, enabled them to get greater material benefits. Good. The third thing is that the lower caste have wanted to have their own levers of power, uh, have their own hands on the levers of power at all levels, at the state uh, level and to whatever extent they can at the governmental, uh, at the central level. Now, this has required them to make cross-caste alliances with other castes, as, which means including with higher castes. And what has happened, of course, is that uh, rather than uh, seeking to destroy the caste system, or the, uh, the uh, structures of the caste system, they have sought to use uh, their position as lower caste to climb up the uh, class and power ladder, if you like. And I'm suggesting that there is a parallel to what has happened to black politics in the United States, in which what has happened is that the earlier forms of black nationalism, pride, self-respect, hostility to uh, racist structures and all, eventually ended up in a kind of Black politics, which is very much within the mainstream, part of the Clinton democratic machinery, uh, is more about more and more blacks going up the class ladder, four or five fold increase in, in blacks in the uh, American middle class, uh, having uh, effectively the same salaries and wage levels as their white counterparts in the same professions, maybe one or two percent difference at the most. And, and the power ladder, so much so that you could have President Obama who's as bad in his foreign policy and most of his domestic policy as, every, uh, as previous American presidents and who has the temerity to see himself as a post-racial candidate. And racism is endemic and fundamental to American society in the education system, in the prison population, all of these things here. But where is the struggle to destroy the structures of, uh, of racism, which cannot be separated from the structures, uh, from the struggle against the nature of neoliberal capitalism. So you are having a co-optation, or if you like, a relative co-optation, a substantial co-optation. You know better than me as to what is the adjective to use with regard to uh, uh, black struggles in the United States. The same thing is happening here. At the same time, as in the United States, the uh, vector of racism and the struggle against racism remains crucially important and does constrain and does have create problems for the likes of Trumps, Trump and others. Similarly, the struggle of lower caste in India will continue to have problems uh, for the BJP and RSS because even as the RSS and BJP is willing to make more compromises for the Dalits, and it certainly will for uh, the left or, or, or Muslims or, or even for the, those liberals opposed to him because it wants to build a larger Hindu unity, it... Uh, uh, it can only go so far. It has to co-opt them, make serious concessions, but not go to the point in which it has to abandon the principles of upper caste Brahminism. And therefore, there, that tension remains. How it will play out, however, is a different question. It needs a very different kind of leadership of, uh, of the lower castes to connect with the class-based struggles, to connect with the struggles of others, 
and not simply to be preoccupied with their lower castes. And I would suggest the same thing in the United States when you have to have a very different kind of a leadership which um, connects much more seriously across racial lines and uh, along uh, lower class lines and with a perspective of uh, fighting against uh, the powers that be and the nature of the American uh, political and, and capitalist system. So I would say in both cases, the possibility is there. It's something that we have to fight for. But so far, disappointment with the nature of the uh, leaderships and the broad direction in which caste, uh, anti, uh, lower caste struggles are taking. What possibility is there for this sort of struggle in India, we haven't talked about the left much, but the Communist Party of India and the Communist Party of India Marxist, which has emerged from the CPI in a in a split during the 1960s, they are they are like the Congress Party shadows of them their former selves, but they were they were once powerful forces. Yes, indeed, they were, but they have lost there. And the base, basic strength is that uh, let me put it this way: uh, their crisis today of the mainstream left uh, is greater perhaps, than that of the Congress Party. The Congress Party got 52 uh, Lok Sabha seats. The left, the mainstream left, CPI, CPM, together got four seats. They've gone down to the lowest ever level. But the most serious problem is that they're now basically electoral forces and they don't have the kind of ideologically disciplined, high morale, committed uh, cadre force that that is the basis for generating extra-parliamentary mass mobilizations and struggles. What's common to the far right, as represented by the RSS and the uh, Sangh Parivar, and the far left, or even the left, not just the far left, but the left, is that in a liberal democracy, it's what they do outside of the electoral arena. that, And if they are successful in terms of their mobilizing outside the electoral, that is what gives them a stronger and stronger electoral presence. This is common to both the far left, the left on one side, and uh, the mainstream left and far left on, uh, in India on one side, and the far right uh, on the other side. However, once the far right uh, develops a very substantial electoral base, it is much, much more acceptable to the ruling classes and therefore can much more easily go up the electoral ladder as well as maintain through the, uh, the resources and the authority and power that it gets from occupying the state for its extra-parliamentary activities. But in the case of the left and the, uh, and, the, and the far left, they must consistently prioritize much more the struggle outside of the electoral arena and not assume that if they are a significant force in the electoral arena, this will not be reversed because the ruling class hates the left and the far left much more than it will hate the far right. But it would like, perhaps, depending on the occasion and how strong it is, to moderate it a little bit, etc. But it would like the elimination of the left, if it could. So there are many greater forces, powerful forces, uh, working in support of the right and the far right than in the case of the left and the far right. But then if you're going to be a force that electorally, uh, that mobilizes extra uh, beyond the electoral arena, that gets more and more support, you can't do it without the most committed and dedicated cadres that believe that the future belongs to them. The great difference between the interwar fascist era and today is that in the interwar fascist era, when things were so bleak, the communist movement and communist cadres and communists said the future still belongs to us. It's now much more difficult for the left everywhere to say the same thing about 
coming future. And as for the CPM and the CPI or even the Naxalites, the main ideological influences on them have been Stalinism and Maoism. And the fact that uh, Russia and China have never created a political system which in its uh, which uh, has can attract others because of its lack of democracy and which has been rationalized by their particular understandings of uh, of marxism and socialism uh, in contrast if you like to those currents outside of uh, stalinism and maoism that had a much stronger commitment to democratic socialism if they don't rethink their own politics and their own understanding how are you going to develop the necessary ideological commitment and discipline and enthusiasm and the attraction of that ideology for others. My last question, looking forward to the, the future, I, I was surprised that to see you write that a left government winning power in the UK or here in the US might be the only near-term hope for changing the trajectory of Indian politics. What, why does what happens over here matter so much for the future of India? One, of course, obviously, is that uh, you are having a much greater, uh, uh, much more connected world order, uh, both in terms of economy and communications. And um, a changing of the relationship of forces, uh, especially if the United States uh, goes along with Sanders and not Elizabeth Warren, whose position on Israel is a disgrace. Not that Sanders is very good, but it's better than Warren. Sorry. Uh, about that, but uh, Warren, I mean, Sanders is much more serious a socialist than Elizabeth Warren. But anyway, if it goes in that particular direction, or it, uh, Jeremy Corbyn coming in, it changes the picture very uh, dramatically in terms of uh, relationship of forces internationally. The, the fact that young people on the left uh, are becoming more significant and radical in these countries will definitely have its effect uh, on other countries. Plus, different policies. And I'm assuming that these forces will also take much more seriously the question of human rights, of uh, democracy, and so on, which means that they will also be much more critical of the political forces elsewhere. And all this feeds into changing the climate here. A lot of the support for, uh, uh, from uh, non-faithful followers of the far right or the right among liberals will change if in contrast to Trump hailing Modi, you have those who are very critical of it, as Jeremy Corbyn has been, and Sanders to a lesser extent. And then don't forget, specific policy changes can also make a difference. Take, for example, uh, uh, the question of nuclear weapons. You know which is the only major governmental party in a nuclear weapons country, which on two occasions, whether it is in opposition, said that if it comes to power, it will go in for unilateral disarmament, nuclear disarmament. It was the Labour Party in Britain. Jeremy Corbyn himself has always been committed to unilateral disarmament. Because of the differences within the, uh, the, the Labour Party, he's had to keep quiet on this and, and tone it down. But if he were but to come... it's a core commitment of his. But it's a, uh, something that becomes on the agenda. Or if you like, if there's a big mess up about Brexit... Scotland uh, separates, that will be the end of the British... Uh, 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 there goes the trident. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the trident, uh, whose bases are in Scotland. All of these things would have an obvious change. Plus, what happens in the United States or in Britain has its effect in Western Europe. 
It has, and insofar as it'll have its effect in Western Europe, has an effect in young people. All of these things change the mood, it changes the climate, it raises morale, all of these things. So uh, definitely. And, and interest, interestingly, I think there are many, many, many Indian American youth who support Bernie here, whose parents support Modi. <laughs> I just hope that those youth who support Bernie Sanders don't support Modi even though their parents do, which means that their class struggle has to start at home. And I hope, I hope you're right about that. The problem in many ways, and this may be changing because you're having a generation of Indian Americans who are born there, who are more open and all the rest of it, I hope. But there's a difference between the Indian diaspora in the in UK and the Indian diaspora in the United States, especially after 1964-65 when uh, immigration laws in the United States uh, allowed for more and more people to uh, to come in. Britain, which uh, colonized India, had to have a whole set of Indians that came from the poorer parts of the world in search of jobs after independence. And they migrated to uh, uh, to Britain. And when they migrated to Britain from poorer parts of Bangladesh, the Salat district, or from Pakistan, or from Punjab in, uh, in India and elsewhere, they met with racism. And at the at the factory floor and in neighborhoods and so on, and there's a whole richer history of fighting against racism among the uh, Indian and Asian diaspora in the in the UK. In the case of the uh, Indian diaspora in the United States, leave aside the earlier period in the beginning of the 1900s, have come from the better off sections of Indian society, the richer sections, professionals, and so on. They are there. They may have uh, had some kind of racism at the glass ceiling level or whatever. But basically, they have seen themselves as a kind of model minority. And being a kind of model minority uh, with the emphasis on education for home and all, they have seen their children move uh, into some of the top educational and research institutions in the country, having good jobs, doctors, this, that, etc. All of that here they have tended to a much lesser extent to identify with the poorest sections of American society. And you don't have the same levels of commitment towards struggling here. I hope this is changing. In fact, there is a book written by someone called Vijay Prashad, which uh, reminded one of uh, W.E. Du Bois's book about the soul of black folk in the United States. And W.E. Du Bois said, am I pronouncing him correctly? Yes. Du Bois? Yep. I think that's the American pronunciation, not the French. Anyway, yeah, uh, <laughs> true. The, yeah, uh, yeah. I, you do. You do know the story about the English, Englishman and the American walking along the road, and the Englishman says, "You know, spring in the air." The American says, "Why should I?" Anyway, sorry, I couldn't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, yeah. no. My point is here is that um, what you have is that um, W. E. Du Bois made a. The, he said the Negro problem. What do you mean by the Negro problem? It's a white problem. It's not a Negro problem, but it's called the Negro problem. So his point, of course, was that, uh, look at this. But in the case of, uh, uh, of the Indian uh, uh, diaspora, Vijay Prashad wrote a book called The Karma of Brown Folk. And which he said, uh, I mean, Du Bois said, how does it feel to be the problem? Referring to, uh, uh, to the term Negro as was used then. And Vijay Prashad says, the karma of brown folk 
how does it feel to be the solution huh. my point here is when the indians who are part of this model minority and so happy to have that term uh, uh, given to them they come to india their americanness tells them that listen how do you run things in india like this in the united states it's so much better huh? and blah 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 huh? when they are in the united states they will look down upon their american uh, uh, counterparts and say are you are you are americans we come from india look at our wonderful civilization how great we are and don't you see how disproportionately more of us youngsters are in the iits and in harvard and this blah 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 and all the rest of it there is an either way they can't lose can they i'm just hoping that the young indian americans that you're talking about huh will break away from this kind of rubbish and will identify themselves much more in fact I remember going in, in when I was in Yale uh, a long time ago and I was a, there was a class uh, I, I, I was talking about India to a group of Indian Americans and I asked them I said what do you think is the mark of a great nation and I got the usual form, standard formulas about how India could be great if it has great science and technology if it has a great military power if the average standard of living is very high in this and that and out of those 25 only one person said what i truly believe in and he said the mark of a really great and decent nation is the way it treats the most indigent deprived and helpless and that really is the mark of how decent and great a society is but i'm afraid that in india we are we are far away from that and i think that even in the united states it has a long long way to go well Achin Vinayak, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Achin Vinayak is a retired professor of international relations at the University of Delhi and the author of The Rise of Hindu Authoritarianism, Secular Claims, Communal Realities, and forthcoming Nationalist Dangers, Secular Failings, A Compass for an Indian Left. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, for each new class which puts itself in the place of one ruling before it, is compelled merely in order to carry through its aim, to represent its interest as the common interest of all the members of society. That is, expressed in ideal form, it has to give its ideas the form of universality and represent them as the only rational, universally valid ones. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or whatever platform, please also leave us a nice review. It is our understanding that said reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But in all honesty, what really does that is you telling your friends about the show. 
please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks is an enormous help. Thank you.